Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the All Bets Are Off podcast in which we're going to be talking about relapse as experienced by our guests Richie Paxton and Stephen Gillett and how they've both come out the other end flourishing in their respective recovery journeys. Our aim today is to try and help destigmatize relapse and the anxieties surrounding those blips. Later on in the show, we'll be speaking to Stephen. However, our first guest, Richie, is certainly no stranger to relapse, having experienced it on three separate occasions. In fact, I think it's fair to say that Richie is no stranger full stop, especially in his native northeast, given his media appearances over recent times and the videos he uploads to Twitter and Instagram. And he's someone that I liaise with semi-regularly, I think it's fair to say, and have learned a lot from. Without further ado, let's get into it. Firstly, Richie, thank you for coming on to the show today. I feel a little bit outnumbered here with a, a couple of Geordies on the recording. Uh, but anyhow, uh, could you start uh, start off by telling us a little bit more uh, about yourself, your addictions and how they impacted your life and those around you? Uh, yeah, so when I was 16, I left school, got got the dream job of, of a football apprentice so I went into the professional game really at 16 and it was like my boyhood dream. Part of part of that was um, I had to travel, I had to do a lot of travelling. So I would have to get the train every day from from Newcastle uh, down to Durham or Dalton. And, and at, at the train stations, there's there's lots of bandits. Um, so that was like my sort of start into, into gambling really. And it was kind of just a thing to pass time while, while we're waiting. And there was a few of us obviously got the train together and it was a bit of a bit of banter and crack with the lads basically. But yeah, that was the start of of, of, of gambling. But it, I wouldn't see it was a problem. I wouldn't see it was a problem at all. Into me football. Uh, football was a bit of an escapism for me. It was probably the only place that I, I felt I could be myself. Um, it was where, where I felt comfortable and didn't feel I was judged or... I didn't feel inferior to anybody else. But then in me in my second year, uh went on a night out, um, ended up in a bit of trouble and, and I ended up with a broken jaw. So from the for basically the my full second year of my apprenticeship, I I didn't really play football at all. And um I struggled to deal with emotions. So this is something that throughout my whole life, I've struggled to deal with emotions. And every time I've been faced with something bad or something good, I've ran away from it really. And and I ran to gambling initially. And that was that was my escape from this, this initial injury that I had. Come the end of my second year, and I never really had much self-belief. Um, and I always thought, I wasn't quite good enough. And this was lots of different aspects of my life, including football. But I come to the end of my second year and my girlfriend was pregnant. So I was quite young at this point and I was expecting a child. And I thought, I'm probably not going to make it a big style and make loads of money in football. So I'm going to leave and, and go to university. And I 
kind of like spoke to the PFA and stuff and they would help us out financially and stuff and help us with with fees and stuff, university fees. So so that's what I'd done. And to be truthfully honest, I didn't really deal with the the sort of loss of the football career as such because um, it was my childhood dream and it's all I knew and I, I didn't know how to deal with that. And the gambling started getting a little bit worse at this point. And then a few months later... Me, my girlfriend at the time went into labour and we had a little boy, but unfortunately he died. And that was like a a big turning point, you know, in me gambling. And that was a big turning point in me just not handling life. I never, ever grieved. I never felt that I could grieve. Um, I didn't know how to grieve and I just ran away. And at this moment in my life, the only, the only place I knew how to feel at ease was when I was in the bookies you know when I was chasing chasing that win or whatever and I had a few wins and and obviously that's what keeps you going back isn't it you know that that feeling that you can do it all the time I'd started university at this point and university was a bit of a struggle uh just because my head wasn't in it because of everything else that was going on but I had a few people around us that had supported us through that and obviously when you go to university a big part of university's alcohol you know so so we'd go out on nights out and stuff and I wasn't a massive drinker because I'd never drank during football um but I found when I did drink when I was at university I always drank to excess I always drank way beyond what I should but everybody else was doing it so I didn't think it was really much of a problem throughout the university I like I said I, I had a part-time job in a gym and I was um getting support financially from the PFA and and I, I, I was quite wealthy for a student I had student loans I had Loads of, loads of different forms of income, but every single penny I got went on gambling, basically. Little bits that were left over, I would go on a weekend out or, or a session out, you know, but I had nothing to show for the money I'd earned. It was just all basically um, feeding feeding the, the gambling, really. And that went on all the way through through university. And, and uh, yeah, it come, to, come to the end of university and I was, I was quite lucky. Um, that I, I got off the job straight away. And through all this time, I'd been trained to do like my personal training and different fitness qualifications. So I had a job in fitness and um, I'd been offered a job in the NHS at this point, which was, which, was, uh, which was good to come out of university and straight into a job in the NHS. Oh, thanks for that, Richie. And it's lovely to have another Geordie on the show. I'm not outrun by Southerners for a change. Um, I just want to say as well, I just think it's um, incredible, your story and, you know, to share with us about the loss of your son and stuff, it must be really difficult for you. I think one of the things that stuck out most for me on the note is that you've gone from training to be a personal trainer and then you've left university and you've almost entered the NHS as a lifestyle advisor Given what was going on in your own life at the time, did you not find this as a peculiar op- occupation? I've never really thought about it, to be truthfully honest. But now that you mention it, what it, what it was, was it gave us an opportunity to have this mask. You know, it gave us this opportunity to hide behind this person who was really helpful, really thoughtful, had all of his stuff together and could help other people in life. And that's what I, I've always seen myself as, as being a caring person. And I, deep down, I believe I am, you know, obviously when, when indic- addiction's involved and we gamble and we we do other things then then it uh it can obviously impact that in a negative way but deep down I do believe that I am a caring person but like I say it, it gives us that opportunity to to hide behind something and I think my role within the fitness industry especially and being a PT is I could 
I could show to everybody on the outside that I was I was this together person who was very proactive and looked after himself and done all of these things that looked after his mental health and his physical health, his emotional health. But at the same time, as soon as I was away from work, I was I was absolute ruined. You know, I was I was a wreck, and I I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't deal with emotions, but. I always found a way of dealing with it, and that was by running away. It was running away to to the bookies and and losing money, basically, um, chasing the wins. And and at this point, I started going out on weekends more, and I started drinking more. And obviously, drugs were involved now, and it was all recreational drugs and stuff like that. But I never seen that as a problem ever. It was always just gambling, basically. That was that was the problem. And, and at about twenty two year old, I. I kind of owned up to the fact that I had a problem with gambling, you know, and, and this was something that wasn't easy for us to do, but but it was it was becoming apparent to other people in my life that gambling was a problem. Yeah, I think when you keep you kept saying that, and I, I think deep down I am a caring person, I think one thing I've learned from my husband is just because you've had an addiction, so my husband's been in, um, well, he's been in recovery for nearly a year in April, and he always says that I'm not a bad person or I'm, I'm not an uncaring person. And I think you've got to remember that just because you've had an addiction doesn't make you a bad person. And it certainly doesn't make you an uncaring person. It just makes you a person that's ended up down that path for whatever reason. Um, I know you mentioned that not long after all of this went on, your mum, I should say mum really, shouldn't I? You can tell I'm over the northwest. Um, your mum turned and said to you that she feels that you needed some help for your addiction. How did that make you feel? And when did you last? When you sought, sought help, how long did the period of abstinence last for? Yeah, so this was kind of my first entry into recovery as such. But at this time, I didn't really have a clue what recovery was. So my mum had been on every internet site there was and um, found a number for Gamcare and we got in touch with Gamcare and I think for for me my mum was very like directing this she was directing us towards counselling and getting help and sorting sorting all my problems out and I was just like yeah yeah I, I knew I needed to do it deep down but I'm not sure I really wanted to do it um, but I could see the hurt and pain I was causing other people and, and thought no I, I'm going to do it and there's probably a part of us that wanted to stop because it wasn't really the life I wanted. But at the same time, it it was still something that I, I felt like I was going to do. Um, but anyway, we got in touch with Gamcare and we got a counsellor. And and yeah, it wasn't a great experience, if I'm truthfully honest, uh, which is a bit crazy because now I'm training to be a counsellor. So my first experience wasn't fantastic. I had a few sessions and then... I sat in one of the sessions and I'll never, ever forget what, what one of the counsellor said was, you know, and she said, Richie, can I ask you something? Have you come here to stop gambling or have you just come here to so you can learn to control it? And that was like a like a green light moment for me. Like, wow, I don't need to stop. I can just I can just learn to control this, this thing that's going on for us, you know. And this was after about three or four sessions and I hadn't had a bet in them period of time. And I walked out of, out of the counselling session that day and, I already knew where the bookies was. I'd already sussed that out, you know what I mean? I'd already sussed where the closest bookies was. And I went straight to the bookies and I, I put a bet on. And that was after, like, I think it might have been my third or fourth counselling session with her. And and then it started that ball rolling again. Yes, it wasn't as as severe or, or the, the stakes weren't quite as high at this point, but it was me trying to control 
trying to control this problem that I had. And, and that went on for a while. But as we know, with, with addiction, with any sort of addiction, it's progressive. And where I started off small stakes again, it quite quickly got back to, to big stakes and damaging stakes and, and was starting to impact my life again. But at this point, what I started to do was really hide the fact I was gambling. So I told my mom I, was, I wasn't, I told my dad I wasn't. And, and I was now getting loans and I was now like getting money deceitfully be, behind people's backs so that I could fund me gambling. And, and that took my sort of secrecy to a whole new level. Um, and I, I believe it was, I don't want to bl- put the blame on anybody else, but the seed was planted in my head that I could, I could control this gambling. Um, and deep down now, 12 years on, 15 years on from that, I know that I can't, I couldn't control it, you know. It was all or nothing. And at what age did you first go seek that help? That was 22. That was like 15 years ago, yeah. Um, that was the first time that I went and actually went and owned up to the fact that I had a problem and started getting some help. And, and I did have periods of abstinence. The first period was about four weeks and then I had a little relapse and then I would try and do four or five weeks at a time. But I always ended up, as soon as I come into any kind of money, so either whether I got a, a big paycheck or I'd done loads of hours or I was also like playing semi-professional football. So I was getting paid a bit of money to play football as well. So sometimes when you'd get like a signing on fee at a club, for example, you might get a few hundred quid and, and it was like, oh, well, I've got a few hundred quid. It's okay if I go and have a £10 bet. But then we know that the £10 bet never stops and we end up losing all the money that we've got. So, so yeah, it was... Moments I, I had lots of money, I felt like a few little bets wouldn't wouldn't matter, but then it always materialised into more. Well, that brings me nicely on to my next question, because I wanted to ask about your environment, because obviously you just mentioned whilst, you were, whilst all this was going on, you were still playing uh, football a bit down the pyramid uh, and still being paid. And in fact, you mentioned in our pre-recorded discussion that you'd use your appearance money to, to fund your Saturday night uh, drink and drug sessions. Now, was this commonplace uh, among other members of the team? And in hindsight, would you say that this type of environment just exacerbated your addictions? Um, I, I don't know if it exacerbated it. I know it, it didn't didn't help us. So my cycle was, this, was, this is how I justified my life, was it's okay to gamble because other people gamble. So Monday to Thursdays, I would be gambling and I would be losing money. And then I'd lose all my money that I had and it would come to a Friday and I just want to get out of my own head. I wanted to get out of my own, my own life. That was a shambles, really. So I'd found drug dealers who would give us money, uh, give us drugs without giving them money and it would like be a tick bill sort of thing, you know. Like, so I would have that and that would start on a Friday and then that would roll into, into a Saturday and then I'd get some money from football, which would fund me Saturday night and the drugs on the Saturday and Sunday. And then we'd be back at Monday and then I'd be looking for ways of how I could get more money again so I could gamble. And I wouldn't say that uh, football made me, me addictions worse, but it certainly didn't help. And I, I, all my partners that I've had throughout all of this, I've lost every relationship that I've had basically through my addictions. And every partner always said like, oh, you need to go to a different team. These lads are no good for you. But the common denominator in every team was me, you know. So it was me and it was me that was taking drugs to football and trying to get the other lads to take them and um, trying to keep them out all night so we could go partying and all that sort of stuff. And 
they would all turn up with football accumulators on for like fives and ten pounds and stuff. But I didn't never ever got involved in that because I wasn't really a sociable gambler. At this point, I was doing it like behind everybody's back and I was doing it in like in secret, really. And I wasn't really playing up to the fact that I had this big, massive gambling problem. But everybody's seeing us as like Richie Jack the lad, he's a party animal, he loves to can out and all that sort of stuff. And that kind of played into my sort of, I, I was very insecure. But when people were like, oh, Richie's great crack, he's a great laugh and he, he wants to go out and party all the time. It was just another front that I had and it was my way of escaping. I think the way you go on about it being like, it's just a vicious circle, isn't it? You know, the weeks probably rolled into months that rolled into years, no doubt. And I think it's evident that you were stuck in such a dangerous cycle and owing money to drug dealers is inevitably going to lead you to lending more money. And again, going back to square one again. So at 28, your mental health was in tatters and you were tens of thousands of pounds in debt and you went to go and seek help again. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so obviously this has been kept a big secret. And then um, I kind of come clean to, to my partner and my mum and dad again about how how much trouble I was in and, and how much the debt escalated. And I was really struggling with with the people chasing us for money, um, own drug dealers, own like payday loans, banks, overdrafts, all, all of this was 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 massive amounts of money now. It wasn't just like a few thousand pounds like it was when I was 22. It was it was a much greater figure. It's it's crazy that the debt I had could have been could have paid me mum and dad's mortgage off, you know, and, and that's the extent that I got to and it and it makes us a bit sad to say that, but but that that's where it took us, you know. At 28 I decided that I I needed a little bit more support and and this time I was wanting to do it. You know, I wasn't being forced on marks there by my parents, but I, I still needed their support and I still needed the people around us to support us to do it. So again, I got counselling, again through GAMCARE. A um, little bit more success this time, but I wouldn't say it was a great experience. And it was the first time that I had went to GA. I'd, I'd been introduced to GA and uh, I didn't really want to go to GA. I was like, I'm getting counselling, that'll be enough. But my mum... My mum was like, oh, we'll go and shit. My mum was part of like a, a Gaminon group in Newcastle. So she took us uh, on a Tuesday night and I went and I didn't really like it, to be truthfully honest, the first time. And my mum would take us, my mum would go be in the room next door and I would walk in the room sometimes and she'd go in and I'd walk out again, you know, I'd, and people used to see us walking in and out of this room. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I got much from it and... Everything that people were telling us to do, I was like, you're different to me, you're not the same, you know. I think when we go into recovery, everybody says, like, look for the similarities and not the differences. And all I wanted to see was why I was different to all these people. Um, and I, I played the victim a lot, you know. I had a massive victim mindset and my sort of mentality was if if all these things that have happened to me in my life had happened to you, then you would just do what I'm doing, you know. And that was my justification of, of doing what I'd done and the way I'd done it and the me behaviour. And, it, and it's sad, really, looking back. But I still, I was still getting counselling and I wasn't gambling very much at this point. In fact, I wasn't gambling at all. And I had, I had a few months of um, abstinence from, from gambling, but I noticed that as soon as I'd stopped gambling, me, me drinking drug usage was going up and it was increasing. And I was drinking excessively on weekends all the time and 
me, me one gram of cocaine was now three grams of cocaine and me two ecstasy pills were now five ecstasy pills. And this is what my life was going like, you know, it was this snowball effect. And just like the gambling went from a few thousand pounds worth of debt into tens of thousand pounds worth of debt, the drugs and alcohol use were, were very similar in terms of how the snowballed and, and just got unmanageable, basically, um, as, as my life was going on. And this was the time when I had a lot of debt that I started fantasising about about throwing myself off the time bridge, basically. And I used to walk across the time bridge thinking, how one day I'll just I'll just jump off there when it gets too much for us, you know, that's that's that'll be my way out. Um and I thought obviously I didn't do that at that time, but it was an obsession. It was becoming another obsession. And then not long after that, my first son came. Well, my second son, but my first son that I've got now, my oldest son, and I thought that would be a changing point for us. And it wasn't. It just the responsibility of being a parent just was too much stress. My relationship wasn't great with my partner and I didn't handle that very all, very well at all. And me, like I say, me drinking drugs, we just went through the roof. Yeah, obviously, um, it has to be said that we're not here to critique the use of services that, you know, and, and that particular type of counselling may not have worked for Richie, but this is Richie's story and clearly that didn't work for him. So I just wanted to point that out to our listeners. Um so you talk about this victim mentality and it's something that I can certainly relate to looking back now. Um, obviously, when you're in the, the midst of it, it's something that is probably unrecognisable and something that you don't really want to face up to. And over there was obviously a, a few years period here and um, all of this culminated. You talk about that sort of ideology um, of visiting the Time Bridge and, and going to take your own life. There was a, a period of time there, you've just touched upon it, you, you had uh, a son. What happened in this period and uh, when did that lead you to, to, to go and actually live out that fantasy? Um, so shortly after my first son was born, we, we had a second son, which was, which was a bit crazy uh, considering we went in a relationship, but these things happen in life and I don't regret that at all. But um, that was like... I was 30, maybe 31, 32, something like that at this point. And the relationship broke down. I'd lost the opportunity to be a dad. And again, that fed into that victim mentality, you know, and that was like self-destruct for me. It was like, I've, I've totally lost opportunity for everything that I ever thought I wanted in life. And, and over the next few months, I kind of got into relationships just for the wrong reasons. And, Every, every everybody that came into my life, I was kind of just using and abusing as such, you know, and, and just getting from them for what I could. And basically every one of them, people that come into my life, I was thinking, what can I get from you? And how can you make me feel a little bit better? And and it was horrible. It was a horrible situation to be in. Um, and that took us up to to about 32, 33 year old. And, and I wanted, um, I was at rock bottom. I went into, I went back to Gamblers Anonymous at this point and, and I was like, I, I really need to sort this out, you know. Um, I'd had like a few months at a time of abstinence and then I kept relapsing. And every time I relapsed, the relapse was substantially financially greater, you know. So so the, the risk was going up, the, the stakes were going up. Um, and I, I, I went back to GA and this time I really engaged with GA and I, I, I kind of immersed myself in it a little bit and and I was doing two or three meetings a week in Newcastle and meeting different people and listening to stories and doing everything that they told us to do you know like 
get rid of your money, get other people to manage your money, make sure you haven't got access to bank accounts, buy yourself from bookies, ban yourself on online and all that sort of stuff. And and at, at this point, I was, I was I'd banned myself from 256 bookmakers in the Northeast because of my job. I, I traveled about a bit and that was the areas that I could cover. And then um, I was like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I need. But what it done was it caused a lot of friction between me and my family and me and my partner because they had all the responsibility. And for me, I was just like, oh, well, if they do their job properly, I'll not be able to gamble anymore and that'll be the problem solved. But all it done was I was getting resentful, you know. I was saying, can I have £10 to do this? And they were saying, well, what do you want £10 for? You know, and they were questioning us everything, everywhere I went and everything I'd done. And, and it was just like becoming a massive headache for us and I couldn't deal with that. And because I couldn't deal with this, the way I was rebelling, because I wasn't gambling, I was using drinking drugs, you know. So so it was, I was just playing into a different field of addiction, basically, and I'd swap one thing for something completely different. And um, I'd went about nine months without a bet, and that, that was like the longest period I've ever, I've ever been. And I had an argument, and um, in this time I'd saved up some money because I wasn't gambling as much, although I was using more drinking drugs, so I was spending a bit of money there. But I ended up having a relapse with gambling, and I still say to this day it was the best relapse I've ever had in my life because of where it took us mentally. And I had this relapse, and I'd went home, and... Um, I was like crying my eyes out and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh, oh fuck it here. I'm just, I'm just going for the, I'm just going to go on the time bridge, you know? And that was me way out. That was, that was what I was, I'd fantasized about for, for quite a few years. And off I went to, to the time bridge. Um, and to be truthfully honest, I still to this day don't think I would have had the bottle to do that. But, but it, it was in my head. It was planted in my head that that's what I was going to do. And luckily for me, there was a passerby stopped and, and uh, she asked us how I was and she said I looked distressed and could you help us and blah 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 and I just started crying to her and telling her that I wanted to die and and she said it was um, you might want to die now son but you don't really want to die for the rest of your life you know she says your problems might you might think your problems are that bad but I'm sure you can sort them out and I'll never forget that that when she said that it was you know it stuck with us ever since and and she, she took us we went for a walk into Newcastle and stuff and we sat down and chatted a little bit and then I says, I'm going home, I'm going home, I need to go home and do something. And a couple of months before that, me, me mum had, I'd had quite a volatile relationship with me mum. And um, me mum had give us some numbers for Cocaine Anonymous and she gives us a number for Sport and Chance. And I went home and I, I'd never threw these numbers away, which is a bit strange because anything me mum ever give us, I, I was like, I'm not doing that, you know, like put throw it in the bin, who are you trying to tell me what to do? But I'd kept these numbers and then... Um, and yeah, I went home and, and rang Sport and Chance. That story there, Richie, what you've just said, my heart got all warm and fuzzy when you said about that lady coming on the time bridge because she just reminds me of a proper salt-of-the-earth Geordie that just stops and talks to anybody. And that's just the nature of the Northeast people. And I just want to point that out to our listeners. If you've never met a Geordie, they will do and go above and beyond for anybody. And she's almost been like a little guardian angel getting you down from that bridge that night. And I just think, you know, you've come really far. And if any of our listeners thinks that committing suicide is the end, I always remember speaking to Gambling With Lives and the parents of them, and I always remember one saying that they said that to kill yourself is such a permanent solution for a short-term problem. 
your gambling problem compared to your lifespan killing yourself can just be such a permanent solution and I think you know you're just living fact that you can turn things around you're 37 years of age now you've been gamble free for a few years how's life treating you now compared to obviously in the past and what things what main things to have changed from the turbulent times which we've heard about today um wow big question <laughs> um so what I would say is, is I went into Sport and Chance, and Sport and Chance give us the opportunity to to learn, to learn about myself, about addiction, and on day one of, of that addiction, uh, on of the rehab program, I'd always said I was just a gambler. So even at this point, I was still just a gambler, and I was going to rehab for gambling. And on day one, the counsellor quickly sussed that my problems were much greater than just gambling and it was drinking drug related as well. And he put that to us on day one and it was the first time that I thought, wow, all, the, all three of these things are linked, you know. I used to gamble to, to get money back to pay drug dealers and I used to use drugs and alcohol to get away from me gambling and, and all of it I just used to get away from everyday life. So... So yeah, so so it's twenty eight days in sport and chance, and it was it was basically give us a foundation to to go away and start doing some work on myself. And this is the first time anybody throughout all of me t- attempts at recovery had ever said, "You need to go and do some work, Richie." You know, all the other times it was like, "Get other people to manage your money. Get other people to do this. Make sure the bookies won't serve you. Make sure the casinos won't let you in." And that's everybody else doing the stuff. But now it was like the onus was on me. The onus was on me to to do the work. And obviously I was introduced to like 12-step recovery at this point. And um, we went to different Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, and all these different fellowships. And and we started working steps. And for me, the steps were really, really good and really important because they, they give us a foundation of self-development and they give us a foundation to, to learn about myself and the first few steps are, are accepting you've got a problem, um, owning up to the problem, and then trying to find a way out, basically. And for me, I needed to, I needed to make peace with my past. And like Ryan said earlier, I had this victim mentality. And, and this was the first time that I thought, my past does not have to define who I am going forward in the future. You know, And that's something I firmly believe now is, is my past is my past, but it doesn't need to be part of my future. You know, it might have shaped us into who I am and it might have shaped us into wanting to be this person who can go out and, and help other people, but it, it doesn't define who I am. And the 12 steps, basically, um, I'm not saying it's the be all and end all because I don't believe it is, but it, it's definitely a, a start for somebody about trying to discover who they are. And, and it helped me basically come to the idea that I wanted to be that person that I met on day one in rehab. You know, I met a counsellor who'd been through a 12-step programme who had a very similar life to me and could relate to us. Um, But he also had some professional experience around counselling and how to get to the root cause of a problem, basically. And and for me, that was the biggest turning point, was realising that what caused my issues, what caused my problems, and... uh, and then that started a, a big cycle of self-development for me and obviously signed up to do a to do a counselling degree and I'm a few months away from completing that and looking to help other people that were in in the similar sort of situation as what I was. And and today I've got to do a lot of things today. I've got to do a lot of things for me 
before I do anything for anybody else. Um, and some people might think that's still being a bit selfish because when you're in addiction, you're very selfish. But you're now being selfish for a different reason. You know, you're, you're being a bit selfish so that you look after yourself so you can go and help other people and be there for other people. And lots of the things that I do now are, are part of routine. So I have a morning routine and I'll, I keep a journal. I do exercise every day. I um, meditate is massive part of my recovery. And the reason being is I was very reactive in addiction, you know, so I would have a thought and I'd go and act on it. And that was my mentality and the way I went on in life. And soon as I had the thought, it, it was there, it happened. The next thing had happened. And what meditation taught us was just to take that time, you know, have a thought, accept the thought, understand that the thought doesn't have to become a behavior and then go and do whatever it is that you feel is best for you. And there's a few scenes in recovery that really stick to me, you know, and it, it do the next right thing. So every decision I make in my life can either take us closer to me goals or further away from them. And I think that's the same in recovery, you know, we've got the opportunity to, to make better decisions even if we sometimes feel like we don't have an option. Um, if we can sit with that thought or that feeling long enough, we can we can change it. Well, it's good that you've got um, some balance in your life now, that's for sure. And we're really enjoying seeing your beautiful face, um, I should say, on, on Twitter with, with, with the videos. Is that something that you're going to continue in the future? Yeah, so a so big part of them, um, I believe a big part of me being a good counsellor is people being able to relate to my story, you know? So I've, I've told my story quite openly and honest, and we've had some good publicity in local newspapers and ITV news and stuff about it. And I've had some great feedback, but the more people can relate to what I went through, the more courage it might give them to seek some help and support. And I think if we all know that lived experience is massive, you know, for, for people in recovery and, if I can combine my lived experience with now a professional qualification, I'm hoping I can help people like I was helped, you know, when I went into recovery. And, and that has to be my my goal moving forward, you know. So I do encourage anybody to speak out and, and get help. Um, but you've got to find the right people who can support you and who you can relate to because ultimately everybody, all people buy into other people, you know, and that's the ultimate one, the thing I think. Out of curiosity as well, Richie, I just wanted to know, because um, a few of the people we've spoke to in the past have said that gambling's probably been the hardest addiction to get over. What's been your experience in regards to, have you found any of them particularly harder out of you, like drug, alcohol and gambling? Um, I would say gambling was the one that I had the biggest obsession with throughout my life. But then when I was consciously trying to stop gambling, cocaine was just totally took over completely you know and it was it become more of I think when I was gambling I was searching a hit of dopamine you know that's what we try and we crave for that that hit of dopamine that feeling that we get when we win and all that sort of stuff but the cocaine's much more um an addictive drug as such you know it changes the the, the imbalances in our brain and stuff so so that was probably harder to give up and I don't think about gambling now anywhere near as much as what I would think about acting out with cocaine or or going going getting drugs when I was depressed or down, you know. But obviously they're just thoughts I have now, you know. And I I learned quite quickly that having a thought is okay. It it's what you do next, you know, and that 
100% agree there. Uh, cheers for that, uh, Richie. I think we should probably uh, end on that note. Obviously, for anyone listening, go check him out. It's at Richie Paxton on Twitter. Strapping, a strapping Geordie lad, it has to be said. And uh, I'm sure we'll keep you very entertained with his videos. Um, you know, I think that your story will certainly help so many. And uh, especially those that may feel perhaps um, embarrassed or ashamed, um, you know, following a relapse or, or, or a blip and that there is hope for everyone. So really appreciate you coming on today, Richie. No, thank you. Brilliant. And I know I and everyone connected to All Bets Are Off wishes you the very best in the future. I know we'll be staying in touch. Now, though, it's time to go for a quick break where afterwards we'll be joined by Stephen. See you in a moment. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate Talkban Stop. The Talk Ban Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm. With support via Gamcare's National Gambling Helpline, free Gamban blocking software, and Gamstop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. Talk Ban Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now, though, it's time to get back into the pod. Hi, Stephen. Uh, great to have you on the show. Now, yours is a unique and rather interesting story for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is because of your dual diagnosis, which we're really keen to hear more about, and also because your gambling addiction lay with one specific product. Could you, in your own words, give us a little bit more background on both? Yeah, I mean, so... Oh, first of all, thanks for having us on, by the way. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Um, um, I think, so in terms of myself, and I've suffered from very bad mental health for about 27 years, sort of since my mid-teens, um, which is when I started going to pubs. That sort of coincided with um, me starting college. And I really think kind of mental illnesses developed soon after that, um, on the back of like, a lot of sort of trauma-based events that sort of started in my childhood. Yeah, the gambling, as I say, sort of started from sort of the age of 16, 17 to about sort of 23. Um, and I think realistically, it sort of cost me over a, a lot of sort of 100 grand over that time. In terms of the dual diagnosis, um, I was diagnosed with as living with um, borderline personality disorder and bipolar 2 um, in October 2019. And I was doing a little bit of reading before the show. And um, I, there was a study which was done by um, the Responsible Gambling Foundation in Victoria, Australia, which um, in which they published some research saying that 39% of the people that they spoke to with a gambling addiction also had a diagnosed mental illness. So that was the kind of thing that I was alluding to when we sort of first chatted. The fact that particularly um, obsessive compulsive and addictive personality traits do run heavily through a lot of diagnosed mental illnesses and also like the reckless spending and um the way that um you can look at that kind of thing as a as a form of like self-destruction and self-harm like we also kind of that i was sort of talking to you about sort of previously um so there is a really a really clear overlap between the two and particularly for me it's it's easy to see how those three traits um overlap and why i not only got so heavily addicted to fruit machines when I was younger, but also why I've transferred addictions throughout my life um, through various periods and going from, 
from various different things. Thanks, Stephen. It's Chris here. Yeah, it's really great to hear you, actually. Um, hiya. And uh, yeah, we met, mate, I don't even know, maybe a year ago, something like that on Twitter. And I've kind of followed you quite closely and we've had some interactions. So it's lovely to, to finally meet you in person, actually. Some of the... Some of the stuff you've said there, it's incredible uh, because, you know, me as well, with, with the alcoholism as well as the as the gambling, I can see what you're talking about around the uh, traits and how you can move from something to something else. I, you know, I stumbled across the gambling. It's because the alcohol wasn't working for me anymore and I didn't do it on purpose, but it just kind of happened. And with like the... Um, kind of OCD traits and things like that as well I feel that I have I have some of those things to some extent and you know I know other people who, who do and and yeah it's just really really interesting and you know what you say there I, I just feel like I can really really relate to it there is a question I've got right now though that's kind of something that's interested me um, because I know you were chatting with Ryan before the recording um, and you've got a theory with regards to the placement of fruit machines in pubs and for someone like me it's not something that I've ever really thought about to be honest so we'd like to hear some more on that, I reckon. And another thing that really stood out is that you would go to visit various pubs. Uh, was that because you were ashamed of what you were doing or was it to chase different jackpots in different pubs? Or maybe it was a combination of the both, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, good to meet you too, Chris, finally. A lot a lot to cover from what you've what you've kind of spoke about. I think the first thing in terms of the in terms of the positioning, particularly fruit machines, I sort of after sort of getting heavily into sort of more heavily into the addiction, I was sort of finding that it, there was it was two places. It was either right right next to the bar, which meant that the establishment was basically enabling two addictions, alcohol and gambling, and making it easy to access. So straight from the bar, and you you literally, I mean, I see it all the time where you can pretty much within your arm span touch a bar and a fruit machine at the same time. So that's how close it is. And also the other one, which I find more interesting is the placement where it's really out of the way, where it might be in like a, it might be two or three in like a corner, particularly in a club where you can pretty much go about your business. Um, something which I talked to, to Ryan before about was um, the way that I see fruit machines as like an invisible, um, um, an invisible addiction. It's not traceable through bank accounts because money is only withdrawn as cash. So it's not like you're on an online on online bookies and you can clearly see where the money's going. For me, I used to just deal in cash, so I could just deal with deal with credit cards um, and bank cards. And so there was never any trace. And it's the same with if a fruit machine is in the back of a pub or in like in a in a corner away from it, you can go about your business. You can pretty much stand there. And if you've got the if you've got the cash on you, you only have to leave to get a drink. And it and I mean and I've done it and I've seen other people do it where you might order two or three drinks at once. So you don't even have to leave. And if you've got the notes, you can just feed them in. And it's almost like it's a, it's almost like it's a dirty little secret because the people who work in the establishments have no, um, they have no legal, um, responsibility as far as I'm aware to tell people to stop gambling. I was never told once, even though people knew me because of the frequency I went in and knew how much I was spending because, um, it's obvious to, to people if they watch you for any period of time, so I kind of think it's almost just like um, it's almost like people, are just, it, it, they're happy for them to be there, but don't really want anything to do with it or don't really want to admit or acknowledge the reasons why people use them and how they use them. The second part, um, Chris, in terms of like different establishments, number of reasons. 
I got to the stage where I used to plan routes. So if I was if I was commuting from work or if I was going somewhere to meet friends or whatever, I'd know what pubs were on routes and I knew which um which which staff members knew me and pretty much when they worked because I was always out. So there might be times when if I was feeling really sort of down in the dumps and I didn't want to be around or kind of have to talk or engage with anybody, I would pick where I was going to go so that I could just go in and mind my own business and not be not be fussed by people. Conversely, if I knew if there were places that I wanted to go, that might be because I knew that I was ha I was happier with the positioning of where the fruit machines were, so that I wasn't in a public view, or that actually people knew me and they knew what I was doing and why I was there and left me alone for the same reasons. So I got I got the privacy and I got the lack of engagement from people that I was that I was after. So that was kind of the reasons for that. Um, I think most a lot of a lot of people who sort of used fruit machines in the way I did would would do the same thing in terms of route planning, getting to places early so that you've got time to do your bit before people arrive and even leaving early to get an earlier train or to kind of go to a, to a different place on the way home on your own. It really is just a bit, it was almost to, it got to a stage where it was rather than, than, well, it was, it was a stage where my instead of my life, fitting the fruit machines into my life it was the other way around the if that was taken over the fruit machines were taken over and i was fitting my life into the way that i needed to gamble at that time thanks for that uh steven I, I wanted to ask actually in terms of when you were going into into the pubs were you going more into the pub to play the fruit machines rather than have a drink or vice versa or is it a bit of both and another question really a little bit off peak conversationally is say if you were going into a pub and it was for a, a social event so you're going with friends or maybe going for a pub lunch with family friends or whatever would you still be attracted to go and play those machines or would you feel that you had to sort of try uh, at least to the best of your ability stem those sorts of feelings so that you weren't being watched by close friends and loved ones well i think when it first started it was mainly in and around college to and from college nobody really knew about it at all because i just go out between lectures and then it would get to a stage where i was skipping lectures but again nobody knew i was still going to college at the same times i was just dividing my time up differently um initially it was sort of 90 percent lectures 10 percent bars and gambling and then obviously the scales tip and it becomes 50-50 and then it got to a stage where it was just completely out of control. Um, but even then, I still just about got the grades that I needed. So I didn't really kind of speak to anybody about it. And I mean, back then, I mean, I wasn't really sort of at that age. I was going out with mates. But again, I was sort of picking my times so at that stage. I could. I, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't be bothered about doing it when I was going out to meet people. But then, as I said to Chris, I'd go out earlier, maybe, and then do my bit before I met people. So I almost sort of got it out of my system. When it really got ferocious when I was at uni, obviously I was away and nobody saw me. Although I was only there for a term and a half, because as I said to you, I blew probably about 
I don't know, maybe eight or ten grand in maybe six weeks, perhaps. Um, all of my tuition fees, everything. So I then had to, I then had to um, bail out on the degree, and that's when sort of I think people started sort of raising eyebrows um, about it because I think gambling and and drinking does you know it, it does go hand in hand to a degree. You do one and you do the other. But see, this is the thing you see: fruit machines isolate people. And I've said to you before that I've seen it. I've been there and I've seen it. It's the pint glass in one hand and the pound coins in the other. That scenario. And when I when I left university or when I when I dropped out, I then went and lived in a in a place quite a way away from where my family lived. So again, I was going out on my own. I didn't know anybody in the town. I didn't want to know anybody. I was going out on my own, drinking on my own, gambling on my own. So again, nobody really knew. So I. I isolated myself so I could do, well, not so that I could do it, but I isolated myself almost without realizing because my sole focus was getting to a, a place where I didn't have to share any of this, didn't have to expose anybody else to it. Um, and then that's obviously as we, you know, when we sort of first spoke, that's why it got to the stages that it did. And yeah, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really ever a case that it was. Because the way that my life went, and like I say, I do believe that particularly fruit machines, it's a very, very, very lonely and isolated, an isolated kind of type of gambling. You know, by definition, how it is, you're standing in front of a screen and it's you're away from everybody a lot of the time, and you don't ever leave that. You don't, you know, you don't ever leave that screen apart from to go to the toilet or to go to the bar, or if you win the jackpot to jump to another machine. So. Yeah, I I think it's very different. I mean, it's very different. It's almost I think it's really old school as well for like the kind of addiction that I had. I'm not sure whether it exists much anymore, but I think it's much easier to hide. And actually, you don't need to be in a situation where you have to hide it from your family until it gets to a stage where you literally can't deal with it anymore. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I wanted to. Uh, the reason why I asked that as well because in the early stages of my addiction. Uh, I would play fruit machines and there were times, for example, even with, with fruit machines, even though I wouldn't consider that a big part of my addiction, there were times particularly in the early stages and I remember being at sort of family dinners in pubs and whatever and I'd see someone, you know, shed a few quid in a fruit machine and I was like, oh, that's primed for a jackpot. And that sort of leads me on to our next question. Another thing that I really did find really fascinating with regards to, to your story is, is that scoping out of the machines and almost sort of profiling people that are playing the machines and, you know, from our original discussion, you would talk about, you know, sort of kind of like, you you would be eyeing up certain things and you'd see other people eyeing up the machine. It was almost like a Wild West sort of stare down for the machine. And uh, yeah, I really wanted to, 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 to go on to that, really. What, what, what was all that about and what was going on? Um, and just how commonplace was it? Well, I mean, you sort of mentioned the phrase sort of staking out. And it's almost kind of like a, it almost kind of borderlined on like the way that predators stalk the prey for me like it was about um i quickly learned how to read body language um of people using machines i never and that's the thing as well as about language i always say using i don't say playing because i don't see them as games so the people using the fruit machines it for me it was about positioning myself so that it wasn't obvious so that i could see them but also 
the main fr- main face of the machine clearly, but also not so obvious that they could like see or really feel my presence. So kind of they could they could kind of go about their business and I could go about mine. Um, I mean, I would normally sit kind of equidistant between the bar, the fruit machine, and the toilet. So again, minimum movement. Everything is really efficient because you want to be able to use every minute to your advantage. But I used to look while I wasn't looking. So like, I might read a paper or use a mobile, but even then like, I was listening. So for example, like the quicker the buttons were being pressed, um, I knew the more they were using, the more money they were putting in and the more they were chasing because I knew that the reels were spinning quicker. And so it was taking more money. And so I was, that was, I was sort of tuning in thinking, okay, I can, I know what's going on here because I've been there. And so I was thinking, okay, either it's not going to be long before either A, that person wins a jackpot or B walks away. And in which case, if, if, if it's the latter, then that's when I, and then I'm ready. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of, I think that's really kind of shows the severity of the, of the addiction when you can actually tune in to the way that machines operate without even looking at it. And also when you sort of talked about people who use fruit machines and drink, you often hear muttering the people talking to themselves and even like hitting buttons harder, much harder, um, or even hitting the machines. And again, you can pick that up without looking at somebody, but again, you can get all the information you need from that. So I'd immediately be thinking, okay, I've been there. So he's obviously running low on money and it's not paying out. So he's getting to the stage where he's going to have to walk away in a minute, but he need, but you still chase him. So again, that's when, you know, you might just sit tight or you might just do a bit of hopping. So for example, I'd, you might just sort of walk around to the machine next door and just have a little go, but not really be focusing on yourself. You're still listening and more sort of paying attention to the person next to you. And I mean, looking back, this is, it's, it's quite grim. But when you're in the height of your addiction, you don't you don't think about that. All you're thinking about is maximizing your opportunities, and you don't you, you don't care about anybody else or yourself. You know you don't you forget that people around you can see you because all you're thinking about is trying to optimize the possibility and the chances of you of you winning. I mean, and also, I mean, I've had people come up to me when they've when I've left the machine and I've jumped on it straight away and they've said to me, I only, you know, I only went to the toilet or I went to go and get some change. And I said, well, you just try and be as polite as possible and say, well, actually, oh, yeah, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know I'm just here having a drink or what have you, but it gets to the stage where you recognize the same people and they recognize you. And after a while, those kind of things run very thin because actually they know that you're doing exactly the same thing as they are. And it gets to the stage where all of that, all of that bullshit, for want of a better word, doesn't wash anymore. And you basically, it just becomes basically a situation where, okay, well, look, if you, if you've, if you've, if you've, you know, if you've walked away, then it's fair game. And it even got to the stage where I was just walking to snooker clubs. There was one, in between work and the train station and I just walk up to the staff and say, you know, is, it, is any of the machines paid out? If there's been somebody, if somebody there, I'll say, has he won anything? Just as like making polite conversation. 
and again just get getting information however you however you can in the sort of the in the sort of subtlest and politest ways possible the way you've explained that Stephen, just just amazing i was sitting there listening so intently like you're talking about you know optimizing your chances you know sitting in the most efficient place possible so that you've got the same distance between the bar and the toilet and the machines and the fact that you're listening into the machines and listening to how people are playing them you're obtaining all that data essentially so to work out how you've then got the best chance of going and, and winning and it's incredible and while you were talking i was picturing myself and i wasn't a fruit machine player to be honest but i was picturing myself in a pub that i used to go to quite a lot and, you know, I can see, I can feel being in that pub right now. I can feel the feelings and I can remember where the fruit machines were and I know where the toilet was and I know there was a fruit machine right near the toilet and I know the other two at the back, which are right out of the way. And it's just incredible because not being a fruit machine player myself, I hadn't really put that much thought into it, but it is, it's amazing. And the other thing you said, which really struck me there, was you don't say that you were, or you didn't say that you were playing the machine, but you were using um, and that's really interesting because that's a kind of term that would be used, you know, with regards to drugs, isn't it? You know, you know, this person's using. And that's really that's really interesting to me because, yeah, I'm sure some people are out there playing fruit machines. But you and the people you're talking about, the people who went to the toilet, this is like me as well. So even though I didn't play fruit machines, I wouldn't leave the roulette table because I think number two's coming in. Whereas, you know, you don't want to leave a fruit machine because you know that other person who's sitting behind you is going to jump in and, and take all the jackpot when you've been pouring all that money in. So, crikey, it's such an interesting conversation. But this show is about relapse, actually. So we really should move on to that, I think. Um, so can you explain a little bit more about the times that you had given it up and abstained and then got drawn back in? What would you say were the trigger points for you? I think there were there were quite a few different reasons. Um, I think firstly purely just not being ready i think a lot of people and a lot of the reasons why people initially have problems when they're trying to free themselves from addictions is that they believe they're ready but they just aren't i i was i thought i was two or three times but i wasn't prepared i didn't want to stop i wasn't ready to stop i didn't want i didn't want to face the fact that the addiction had got to the level it had and on some levels didn't feel that I deserved a better life and actually managing the self-loathing and actually kind of being in a situation where you think actually this is what you deserve and actually the pain and the dark places that you go to are what you deserve is another one of those reasons because if, if you don't feel you deserve anything better then you're going to go to the places where you think you deserve to be. I think sometimes that's subconscious because the pull of the addiction, but it's sometimes it's very conscious. And a couple of times my decisions were very calculated because I wanted to, I needed to feel something. And even if it was pain, even if I was hurting myself, it was better to, hurt myself and feel that pain and just feel nothing at all and i mean relapses as well i think i think i mean it's the same with drinking you can find an excuse like i mean if i'd had a really if it was like one time something really bad had happened in a relationship that i'd had and i was walking back from the station and just thought i don't care about myself i don't care nobody cares about me i don't care about myself what's the point i might as well just go and you know 
order some of my favorite drinks and just and just kind of lose myself but like, in feeding your addiction you <clears throat> you get to the stage where you really do really do literally use yourself like kind of lose yourself i think the shame as well just the, the i think there's there is so much shame linked uh to the word relapse which i don't even like anyway um, i'm not a fan of that i think loneliness as well guilt so i felt so, i just walked around just all the time with guilt people i'd hurt the way that i treated people destroyed relationships um borrowed money off of people never repaid them frustration that i couldn't do better in life in relationships that i felt weak because I was in the grips of the addiction actually thought, look, I just can't, if I'm not going to be able to do anything about it, then I may as well just, I may as well just do it. This the, the, the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy thing. If, that, if that's the way you see yourself, then you, then you do it. And you're always in terms of like the times that I that I got drawn back into gambling, that the line, the tightrope is so fine. And I knew that it'd be happening because when I was, when I was not, before I actually quit, a couple, a few times that I relapsed, I'd start off by planning my routes that were nowhere near any bars, and then the routes would change, and then the speed that I walked would change, and then eventually I'd go into places that I knew I shouldn't be going. So the thing is that the triggers can come from nowhere as well. It can be anything. Like for me, situations at work where I'd had enough, or just a phone call that I'd had where I thought actually I'm not, you know, I can't deal with this anymore and the one thing that the, the one thing that gambling offers you is non-judge is non-judgment and non-response so for me it was just being able to i knew that although it was destroying me i had a pastime not a pastime i had i had something that i could do where nobody would judge me and where i could just be anywhere in any any one but the person who I was totally did I mean there's obviously a lot of emotion and and I mean you've just mentioned a few there environmental sort of reasons uh, as to why someone uh, would likely relapse do you think uh, as well with with certain products in particular you know I know I played fruit machines for example and uh what with slot machine design and such do you think there are those sort of hooks where you might feel a level of almost in a twisted way, competition, and that sort of draws you back in? Or maybe that's just from my own personal experience, but I'm intrigued to see what it's like from a fruit machine uh, addiction perspective. I think the biggest trigger for me was probably going, well, one of the biggest certainly was purely just being in a bar with my friends and just hearing fruit machines work and hearing people around them. And as I say, going back to the, what I mentioned earlier on about being able to hear fruit machines and the way they were working. If I, and the thing is I'd, I'd key into them straight away. And if I knew, if I thought that, if I knew that a, that a machine was likely to pay out, that's when the trigger is because you think you can walk, you can go over, put in a fiver, take the jackpot, maybe even get a jackpot repeater and then leave. And then, and then you think, okay, then you've done, then you've, then you've, you fed it. You fed the addiction. You've got your money. You walk off. So that in its, I think that was probably the the biggest thing. And also being around people using fruit machines, but obviously them being completely unaware unaware of what I was dealing with myself. 
So you're kind of putting yourself through that again. But because you're not talking to people about it, they don't know. So they just, they just, they're just carrying on as normal. Whereas at the same time, you're having to deal with all of those triggers that are going on whilst trying not to get sort of sucked in. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Absolutely. Um, it's made me think of some times actually where I was in the pub because, you know, one of the things that I've said before, I think, is that, you know, I wanted to give up gambling but in 2015, but I believed it was a habit and not a... Um, not an addiction at the time, but I was really scared to give up drinking. So I sometimes found myself, and I hadn't ever played fruit machines before that point, but then I did find myself playing the fruit machine in the pub sometimes. And it was because like some of those things you've just mentioned about hearing the sounds of the machine and stuff. And it kind of made me feel like I wasn't really gambling, but it gave me that little outlet. And and then that led on to worse things again, back to back to a full-blown addiction for me. But I know that um, another thing that frustrates you is how common fruit machines are. And where they sit in society can you give us a little bit more detail on that and in an ideal world what would you like to see happen to the fruit machine industry yeah i mean i i I have a lot i do have i do have a lot of issues with with this personally i i believe that fruit machines belong in casinos and only in casinos i don't it angers me. I don't believe there's any reason for fruit machines to be in establishments where children are present. The amount of times that you'll be in a pub and or a restaurant and somebody will be at the bar doing something or making an order and you turn around and you see a, 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 a child or a, a young adult bashing, the, bashing buttons on a machine and it's all harmless. You think it's harmless, but it's for me it's, it sows seeds it it fuels curiosity on a subconscious level and i think that that's and i think it, it happens without people knowing and i just don't believe that restaurants need them or should have them service stations again if you're going to have them you need to just have an area that's bordered off like a casino which is 18 years and over don't have one next to one of those little cars that a five-year-old sits in when you put a pound in it makes noise and go up and down they don't need to be next to each other or it doesn't need to be next to a snack machine as you walk in there is only one reason why fruit machines are placed where they are and that's for people to feed off of addicts to make money i also have a real problem with arcades at seasides and the fact that there are fruit machines so many of them in mixed in with games that children are using if you're going to do it have a separate area which is just for over 18s right this is the thing society paints gambling as a really as a really kind of social and and almost family orientated activity yeah definitely Stephen. i couldn't agree more you know why on earth would you put a fruit machine where a child's going to eat dinner when that is the point of the place you know if the idea is that a child goes with their family to eat dinner then that's what they should be doing you put a fruit machine there you've got the mum or the dad might be intrigued and might want to play on it and therefore lose time with the kids or you've got the kids who are pestering the parents to say oh can we go and play this it's like no you're not old enough to and all that kind of stuff and and it's not a fruit machine but um i remember when my boy was younger they had one of those uh, like grabby machines to get the teddy bears and that was right next to the exit of one of the 
restaurants local to me. So every time he went in there, we couldn't get him out unless we gave him a few pounds and then he wanted more and more and more and more. Or we dragged him past screaming. And that's what we had to do to get him out. And it's so it's that same thing, you know, you go bowling for you know, bowling, you're supposed to go bowling to go bowling, but actually there's always an amusements in there. Um and fine if it is just kids' games and that, but very often it isn't. Um so I I'm totally with you on what you've said there, Stephen. Um but something else you mentioned earlier as well, you've already said this, you don't like the term relapse. And I'm just really intrigued to know as to what you particularly don't like about it. I think I sort of, this can be sort of, this is probably going to be quite polarizing. I think maybe, but for me, I just think that it's it almost sounds like it's something inevitable that something a person has no control over. Like having like having a lapse. Like the thing is with this is that if you slip back into addiction, you're often fully conscious of why what's happening and and making that decision. So although you're not Although you not, although you don't have control to a degree, you're still processing that, and you're still, and you're still kind of, you 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 are present. It's not just like it's you black out and then you wake up and you've gone to the pub and you've blown hundred pounds on a fruit machine. You are fully conscious throughout that, and like I said, sometimes people have setbacks because they want because they think. That it's gonna ease pain, or it's gonna it's gonna numb emotions, or it's going to just give them a break. So that's the thing for me. It's it's I don't. That's why I don't like the term personally. Um, and the thing is as well, I, I I there's so much guilt. Like when you when you have a setback, like for me when I when I the first time I tried to quit. And I didn't, and I had a setback. I felt so much guilt, and I felt like I'd failed, and I felt horrendous. And I think that that word is almost like there's so much guilt attached to it. And if you if you're an ad, if you're an addict, you know how much guilt you feel the first time you say that you've had a setback and that you've not managed to stay on the path you want to stay on. I just feel, I just feel words could be just a bit softer and to kind of make people feel that it is okay and that it is going to happen but it's not the end it's not the end of the world it's not you're not the first person to have a setback or to or to have a regression so i think that yeah there's a lot more almost a lot more positive uh, almost a lot more positivity around a setback because you can have them in business you have them in sport you have them in all in all in all kind of situations circumstances in life but you come through them and they can be and they can be positive and i just think it's just about really trying to build people up when they're they're most vulnerable rather than feeling they're them feeling like language is tearing them down yeah, Stephen, absolutely spot on there. I love what you were saying, actually. Um, but something that really, really relates to me there is um, it's around learning. You know, for me, it's about looking at these things as learning experiences. We journey through life, okay, and we have experiences, good, bad, diff- indifferent, whatever, and we learn from them. And you've just touched on that there. So I just really want you to jump in on that point because for me, the term relapse is what it is. I don't mind it. I, you know, I don't think much about it. But since I've started my recovery I haven't relapsed however I would say that before I started my recovery 
I did on a few occasions. And that was because, as you mentioned earlier on as well in the show, I wasn't ready to admit to myself that I was ready to, to stop. So actually, I could really say that my recovery journey began in 2015. But now I say it's 2017. So, you know, for me, what happened between 2015 and 2017 was a fantastic learning experience for me, which I now take forward um, for the rest of my life. Yeah, so that's the way I look at it, a learning experience upon a journey. Just in terms of the learning, yeah, I think it's a very good point. I mean, I would say actually that it's he's probably right that his recovery did start in 2015 because it's almost like that's when you that's when you decide that you're that you're gonna you know that you are gonna start going in that direction even if you're not necessarily ready there's still that time you think actually i'm you know this needs to stop and that's when the seeds are first are first sown i mean i i would say yeah i mean for me the first time I walked in, that the time when I walked into to GA, when I was walking home after a massive blowout, although that was the last time I actually gambled, that wasn't when I when I started my recovery. That was just literally the time where I couldn't go any further than I was. But I think it's it's, it's a very kind of it's a very personal thing isn't it for everybody and people look at it different ways and there isn't a really a right and a wrong and i think as well that's what's that's what's really important it's not it's not about doing things that you know you think are right it's about just kind of finding out what works for you and and just just looking after yourself you know while you're going through it I would certainly happen to agree with that. And but well, it's very subjective and it's very personal. And what I will say is I do agree with you in terms of the, the term relapse, going back to that point that we were making earlier, is I find it quite harsh and almost like it's some form of mythical sort of scary creature. And um, so I'm, I'm not a massive fan of it uh, at all. And uh, I know that you're also not a massive fan of the word recovery, Um possibly um but how do you think i know that you like the term progressing how do you think you're progressing now um as we round off the show i think just first of all um i think the what i think like the the term um recovery i think to be honest with you it's it's again it's something which is which is very much a personal thing and i can see why particularly like in terms of like alcohol it is an illness so you know, recovery is 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 the right sort of frame for that. Um, and again, it's it's just, it's just however people feel feel comfortable and the way that they see themselves and the way that they see how their addictions fit into into their lives. Um, and again, it is a very personal thing. I mean, for me, I yeah, I mean, I I just look at the the reason why I look at progression is because just a moment ago we talk about when i talked about setbacks and regression there's more for me there's more of a relationship between progression and regression and again that's a, an easier it's kind of it, it's an easier step to take so there's not it doesn't seem as harsh if if you do take a step back and but if it feels to me like the the link between progression and regression is 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 shorter so actually, it's kind of it's an easier bridge to gap. Um, 
an easier gap to bridge even 100 percent. and lastly Stephen, i have to say i admire the way you carry yourself online on social media with such honesty and openness when you when you come through when you come through really savage addictions you know you, you can it does make you a better person in some respects you can you can become a lot more empathetic and non-judgmental in terms of people coming to you and talking to you about what they're going through and you can you, you, you know you can't understand but you identify of experiences and make people feel like they're not on their own and that no matter how bad it is you know you can you can come through it and i think that's one of the one, one, one of the key things is that whatever stage you're at there'll always be somebody that can identify with you and the site in in the same way you can give that back to other people as well and i think that's one of the one of the amazing things that I've seen since I became a part of the um, the like recovery and addiction community on Twitter is that quite how incredible the people are and how much support people give and receive. And I, I think it's already a place which people, a lot of people would struggle to survive without. I think it's such a key part of so many people's lives does such a lot of good um and i think that's one and because people are so open and because they don't feel like they're being judged i, I do really feel that it does a lot of good and that it really does have a although it's always going to have you know it's, it's always going to have its challenges i think it's a really positive thing for a lot of people totally agree with that um i've I think it's fair to say, and it's something that I've mentioned on many, many other podcasts, that the uh, recovery community that I found online, that you know, I found some real uh, connection with. And uh, well, I would still say that I'm still in, the, in my infancy, being uh, less than less than twelve months into my recovery, is uh, uh, but certainly in the early, early days, um, massive, massive help, and I still, you know, regularly, I've, I've, I've gained so many friendships, and I one one of the things for my addiction is obviously I lost a lot of friendships. Um, so to, to gain yeah. new ones is, uh, is is massive. And I can see that you're often doing a, a grand job on, on social media with some of your tweets and some of your interactions. So uh, thank you for, for that, Stephen. It's been fantastic having you on the show. So I just want to say uh, much appreciated. No, I mean, I've, it's, it's been, I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I feel the same. Um, it's really good like connecting with you and Chris and, and you know, and lots of other people. Um, on the platform and um hopefully um you know the, the work you're doing goes from strength to strength and you can continue making making a difference and um yeah just doing you know doing good things thanks Stephen. i uh, really appreciate that i mean i think it's fair to say that we do our best and ultimately if we help just one person uh, with the support of our guests like yourself which ultimately make the podcast what it is then We've done our job and uh, yeah, really appreciate those kind words. I sure hope today has shown people that do have a setback, that they can overcome it. There's nothing to be ashamed of and that they can continue in their recovery. Uh, with thanks to Stephen and, and Richie earlier on in the show for sharing 
their stories. And until next time, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the All Better Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetteroff underscore and share this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble-free. Thank you for listening.